Welcome back to the Shepherd Peace Ministries. I'm Nathan Clark, and here today on our weekly worship, we're going to continue our look at questions and answers in Genesis. Today, we're going to jump in at the question, what are the trees in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9? So let's just jump and look into that verse real quick and, and see what we're talking about. Genesis chapter 2, open up your Bible, verse number 9. Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also and in the midst of the, is in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So here's, here's the basic question. Are all three of those references to trees talking about a literal plant that grows out of the ground and produces a fruit that you and I can consume at a meal? Or is this referencing something else? So the question is, is we'll say the, the three options that we have out there based on um, what you might get from a sermon is that we can, we can either make this literal, three literal trees. We can make it figurative. The trees are representative of something else. Or we can spiritualize it. So let me give you, and this is probably going to be very crude, but just let me, to the best of my ability, let me give you an example of what those three might look like. So something literal would be like this. I tell my son a story. I tell him, I say, there is an apple tree in the backyard that grows delicious apples that I truly love to eat. That is a literal story about an apple tree that produces apples that I enjoy eating. Is everyone, I think that we're all on the same page with that one. Okay, that's literal. Figurative, figurative might look something like this. There is an apple tree in the backyard. That apple tree sometimes produces good fruit and bad fruit. Sometimes it's very difficult to tell that the good fruit isn't actually as good as it may seem because on the inside, there grows a worm that you can't see. And it's very important for us to be weary of that worm and to be aware that even in what's fruit that looks good, that there might be evil lurking. All right, so I started, that. we'll say that's figurative. I started the story out talking about a tree, and if I stopped in the beginning, it, it, I might actually even be picturing when I tell the story an actual tree in my orchard. But obviously, when we get to the end of the story, we can tell that that really wasn't talking about trees, but he was using a tree as an example of talking about how sin can hide inside of something that appears to look delicious and good. But what about spiritual? Spiritual would be something like this. It would be as if I wrote a catalog advertising how to take care of apple trees. And I list out all the things that you need to do. And then I sell the book to people that grow cherry trees and, and pecan trees and, and whatever other type of, of tree that you might want to grow. I say, well, this will work for that. Because it's not really about apple trees. It's, I, it's just a spiritual representation of all trees. That would be spiritualizing it. So what are we looking at in these verses here? Is it, I think we can, elim, I'm going to go ahead and eliminate spiritualize. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I'm not personally, I haven't personally bought into the idea that the Bible spiritualizes anything. The Bible talks about a lot of spiritual things through analogies and through, we'll say, uh, 
um, figurative speech, but to actually be talking about something and then say that that applies to everything under a, we'll say, the spiritual umbrella, that that's just a spiritual story about every, now, I'm not quite sure I buy into that. So I don't think that we have, we have to worry about that this, this is talking in, in, we'll say, a reference to a spiritual activity. So that leaves the two that I th think, think that you find in the Bible on a regular basis. The other two is found, I mean, found a lot. That's either what you're looking at. You're looking at something that is a literal story, history. The Bible's got a whole bunch of that. Or you're looking at something that's figurative. In the New Testament, they're called parables. In the Old Testament, they're called stories. In fact, you know, they're called parables in the Old Testament too. So parables is an example of a story about an object that might be literally you can visualize, something you're familiar with, but the story really has nothing to do with the object in itself, but it has a moral story that we can learn from it or something else we can learn from it. When we get into prophecy, we see that the difficulty that we find when we get into the books of the prophets is that the literal will then begin to overlap with the figurative, and it's very difficult to weed that out. Now, the question may, before we even dig into this, the question may be asked, in fact, is asked a lot, why on earth did God write the Bible like that? Why didn't he just, you know, line it all out? Why didn't he just tell us in here what the, this tree is this? And why do you even use tree if he's not talking about tree? Why just call them what, what they are? Well, here is one, one reason. I, I think there's two reasons. First, I think Genesis represents a story that might not be necessarily age appropriate for everybody. I'll, if you're with me, that maybe, you know, and I think this is, this is funny because um, we'll say the two, two most gruesome stories in the Bible are found on almost every um, Sunday school wall. Every, you know, child's classroom inside of a church has got, we'll say that I think the two most gruesome stories in all the Bible, and that's the fall and that's Noah's flood. Yet they're painted in such a wonderful way that you almost think that, wow, that was, that would have been, I would like to, I wish I was there for the flood. That would have been cool. See all those animals come off the ark on all the green grass and the trees growing. That would have been so awesome. That, is that how it was? Of course not. And the same way with the fall. It wasn't nearly as, as beautiful as we picture this beautiful tree and a snake coming down the tree and Adam and Eve enjoying the, the fruits of the garden. It was, a, it, was a, it was a terrible day, a terrible, terrible day. Yet these two terrible days <laughs> make it in front of children more than, in, in picture form, more than anything else in the Bible. Why? Because the Bible has a way of making a terrible situation age appropriate for the children. And I think that a lot of what we read here in Genesis is that very thing. And that's why it's written that way. They want the story to flow right, but we don't want the story to divulge too much detailed information that might not be ready for young ears. And I think God wants the word of God instilled in a child from the very moment it's brought into this world. So sometimes we have to sugarcoat, we'll say the most horrific acts in all history found in the Bible so that it's okay for them. So that's one area that I might say why the Bible doesn't just come out and say things we'll say right up front. But the second reason, and probably the, uh, the even more scary reason, 
But the more profound one is that Jesus was asked this very question in Matthew by his disciples. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to jump in at verse number 10. Yes. So Jesus just finished telling a parable that we're very familiar with, the parable of the sower. He sows this, um, this seed on all these different sources of ground. Some ground produced good, some ground didn't produce, some ground produced good for a moment and then was, you know, washed away. The birds ate some of the seeds. So anyway, he's telling this story. And this is a, a figurative story. He's using a real live situation. These things have happened before in history, but it's not really about the birds. It's not really about the soil. It's not really about the seed. It all represents something else. That's a figurative story. But the disciples didn't understand it. In fact, they went so far, they're like, I don't even understand, Jesus, why you keep telling these stories? Because we, we know, if we know anything about the gospel, we know Jesus told a lot of stories. And a lot of them aren't really that easy to understand, which is why there's going to be many different interpretations of the same story. <clears throat> so why did Jesus do it? Let's see what the, what's happened. The disciples asked that same. In verse number 10, we're in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, why speakest thou unto them in parables? Why are you doing this, Jesus? I, we don't understand. Not only do we not understand, but we're, we're, we're considering ourselves smart ones. Why are you telling these guys? They don't know. They're nothing but a bunch of Gentiles. They don't know what's going on. Why are you talking to them like this? They'll never get it. <laughs> Here's what Jesus said. And he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that key word, mysteries. See, this is not what the story is. See, we're getting ready to look into in Genesis chapter um, 2 here about these trees. Well, it's kind of a mystery. Well, I'm not really sure what these trees mean. I mean, is it literal? Is it figurative? What is it? I'm, I'm kind of up in the air. It's a mystery. But to them, it is not given. So there's a group of people that the mystery is supposed to be revealed to and a group of people as a mystery is not supposed to be revealed to is not to be revealed to. And this is, this is Jesus guys. I know this is not what you're probably hearing in the mainstream Christian church. But don't be mad at me. I'm just reading to you his answer to why some of the things in the Bible are difficult to understand. He says right there, so that you can understand it. He said, there's some people I don't want them to understand. But to those, for you, whom it has been called, I want you to understand. And so this requires, we'll say, a special intervention, which I'm going to call the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit unlocks some eyes and doesn't others. And the parables, the stories, these, these analogies help keep the mystery where God wants it, hidden. For whosoever hath, to him shall it be given, and he that hath more abundance. But who, whosoever hath not, for him shall it be taken away that he hath. Therefore speak I unto them in parables. This is why he's speaking in the parables. Some of us have the calling and the election, and some of us don't. I don't choose that. 
I'm not going to choose that. I'm not going to be part of that. Hands off. But that's but God is saying that that's what's happening here. That there's some that have, that have and some that don't have. And he doesn't want those who don't have to get some of what the people that do have. That doesn't sound like God likes to share very much. But that's what it says. Therefore speak I unto them in parable, because they because seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. So it'd be unjust for God to, we'll say, not provide the information to everybody. Everybody who is eligible for condemnation must be given the key to salvation, the opportunity. Otherwise, that's unjust. So God's saying that, yeah, you're going to hear it. You hear it says, you hear, but you hear not. So you're going to hear, you're going to read the word of God, and you're going to see these stories and these parables, and it's going to come through your ears, or it's going to come through your eyes, but you're going to be like, oh, I don't understand what that means. Well, that tells us a little something about who you are, and what the purpose for this is. Now, there's a, a second witness to this. Mark chapter 4. It's a, a little more detailed in, in what's going to happen. Mark chapter 4, verse 12. We're going to jump in basically the same question. They seen, they may, that seen, they may see and per, perceive and hear that they may hear and not understand. Now, here's the thing. We, we just read all that earlier. Okay? But lest... At any time, they should be converted, and their sins should be forgiven them. I, I, I encourage you to some time to go back and, and read that again. But here's what I, I think I just read. God's saying that I am deliberately keeping certain information from people so that they don't figure out how to be saved. Now, I'm going to leave it at that. Again, this is the word of God. If I'm, I'm wrong on that, I encourage you to help me understand that. But that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that, that the reason why God talks in parables and in stories is because he doesn't want certain information to be shared with everybody. But he wants to preserve this for his children, his, the saved individuals, the ones that are going to be doing his work. He wants to preserve it for them, not for those who reject him. He wants to keep their eyes closed. He doesn't want them to have this precious gift. And I think sometimes that's the problem, is we don't truly understand how precious and how valuable the knowledge of the gospel truly is. That we think, we treat it like it's just, like it's water. We just feed it to everybody. And if they don't like it, we hook them up on an IV. That's not how God works. God says this, this, this water is so precious that I want to make sure that it only goes in the mouth of those who are going to use it in an appropriate way, which is to save the saints. So that brings us back to our original question. What are these three trees? All right. If I'm, I'm going to back this story up to verse number seven, because this is what we have here. Once we get done with chapter one, chapter two, uh, well, at least starting in verse number four, is a real, I'm going to call a real brief recap of what just happened. So, so if we go up to verse number four, it says, this is, these are the generations of heaven and the earth. So this is the unfolding of the creation. All right. So it goes through some things there. 
And then we get to verse number uh, seven. And it says, The Lord God formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed in him the nostril, the breath of life. And man came a living soul. Now man's on the scene. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there put the man whom he had formed. So now the man's in this garden. All right. So now he's going to give some information to the man in the garden. And he says, Out of the ground, I think there's, out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, the general thrust of up to this point seems to be that this is talking about actual food. We've got man being formed, we've got man being placed in the garden, and now we've got trees and he's telling them to go eat. Now, I could build and have built um, a position that trees there could be figurative. And he's talking about that you can eat of all of God's word, listen to everything that he says. And I can go through the Bible and show you verse after verse that God's word is considered food, the bread of life. Um, Job says that God's word is, is more valuable than necessary food. But I don't think that would be appropriate. I think that what we're seeing here is that the tree of every tree he is actually talking about actual fruit trees. But I don't think that this story, this is, we'll say, the red flag for me. This was the red flag that went up and said, hey, hold on. I don't think that this story after this point is really talking about food. I think it was ushered in with food, but I don't think it's actually talking about food. And here's, here's where my first red, red flag came in. If we go back and we make reference into the, the um, previous chapter, we'll see that tree appears as food a couple of different times. But every time it appears, like in Genesis chapter 1, um, verse number 12, and it says, The earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after its kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after its kind, and saw that it was good. So there we see that trees and herbs are together. So that's, we'll say, a more complete diet. We're not going to eat just trees. We're not just eat fruit, but we're going to eat the herbs too. So when he makes reference to food, there was that complete diet mentioned. And then again, we see uh, it mentioned again in verse number 29. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of the earth and every tree in which it is fruit of a tree yielding seed to you. You shall be for meat or for food. So there we see again, trees are mentioned again, but it's mentioned with herbs. So it seems to me that when God wants to tell a story about food, he's telling, at least in, in these chapters here, the whole story. Both the, the herbs and the big tree, the fruit trees. But here, the herbs get dropped. Now, is that enough to build a, a, a position in theology on? No. But what that was, is for me, it was a red flag. It tells me there's something about trees here that's different than the mention of trees before, even though it's kind of coming in as food. And so let me show you what happens here. What we have here is to say, out of the garden made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So there's all the trees. I think that's all the trees that we see in verse number 29 of chapter one and verse number 12 of chapter one. Those are all the trees. That's the trees that you and I would see on a regular basis that we would consider edible fruit, fruit trees. But then it goes on. It says the tree of life also, or rather in addition. So in addition to all the trees, there's another tree. See, this tells me 
that these trees aren't the same as those trees because they're not every tree. They're the tree also. There's something addition in the garden to the fruit trees and to the other trees. It's, it's, and it's called that. So that tells me, hmm, maybe these trees aren't the same as the original trees. And it says, of ev the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So I think that there is enough evidence here to say that I need to question what these trees are in addition to the trees that are good for food. I think the trees that are good for food are talking about literal fruit trees. But I don't think that we're looking at the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil as fruit trees. Now, so what we're going to do is we're going to just kind of break that down and see what we can determine. There's one tree mentioned in here out of all three of them that we know for sure from a biblical perspective. We know for sure. I don't know for sure that every tree is actually talking about fruit trees, but I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident. But I know for sure what the tree of life is. So let's turn into our Bibles and see what the Bible says. Again, now we're going to go to Revelation. What I say in my previous study, Revelation is a real good place to go and find answers in Genesis because it's, it's going to be what Genesis was supposed to be. We have the beginning, but we don't see that anymore. We see the fallen world. But then we go to Revelation and we see the new painted picture that God makes of Genesis. So let's turn to Revelation and we're going to Revelation chapter two In Revelation chapter two and in Revelation chapter three, we see these letters written to the seven churches at the end of every letter to the church, to the Pacific churches. We see that if they overcome, they get Christ. And Christ is described seven different ways at the end of these letters. And so in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, we see to the church of Ephesus, we see how Christ is described here in this letter. And he says, uh, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of paradise of God. So we know that the tree of life is Jesus. That's what they're going to get if they overcome. Just like all the other churches, they overcome, they're going to get a, a representation of Christ. And it even goes so far as to say, which is in the midst of paradise of God. What is the, the paradise of God? They're talking about Eden. That's the Garden of Eden. So we know that the tree of life, in the midst of the garden, in the midst of the paradise of God, is Jesus himself, Jesus Christ. Then if we turn into our Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 22, or rather Revelation chapter 22, verse number two, we see again, and in the midst of the street of it, and in either side of the river, there the tree of life, which bare 12 uh, manners of fruit, and yield her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There again, we see the presence of Christ represented as the tree of life in the new Jerusalem. And then verse number 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come and I will, and, and whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. 
So we see this representation that Christ is the source of life. As a tree, and it's mentioned in the Bible as a tree of life. And also, let's go to um, John chapter 6, because we want to make sure that we, we get this picture that, because the argument sometimes is, well, it says that they ate it. Well, just because the, they say that it ate it, does that mean that they literally ate? I don't know. Let's, let's look in John chapter 6, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Okay, there's another way that it's, it's worded. We got the tree of life, we got the water of life. Now we have the bread of life. Who is the bread of life? Christ is the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. Talking about himself. Says this, is, this isn't like the manna that came from heaven. They ate that and it didn't help. All it did keep them nourished for a little while, but that didn't give them everlasting life. But me, I am the source of everlasting life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, are we literally going to eat Jesus? Come on, folks. No, we're not literally eating Jesus. And I say that because there's some people out there that believe that we do. They believe that when we take communion, that I'm, I'm literally eating Jesus's body. Okay, it's a sacrament. This is, this is not literally tearing off Jesus' flesh. Yet we're still eating of Jesus. That's what the Bible says. He shall live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Which is talking about his crucifixion. He's going to give up his flesh on the cross for our salvation. So there, we're not going to go any deeper. There's many places that I could go. But we see, when we go to the Last Supper, where Jesus references that you're going to eat of me. This is that I am the life. So we, I think that we can build almost airtight case that the tree of life in the garden was not a fruit tree that produced fruit that you ate and then you had eternal life, but that the fruit tree in the garden was, in fact, the presence of Jesus Christ. And by partaking of him, by partaking of him in your life, I'm not 100% sure what that would look like, but I know we weren't breaking the fingers off and eating them. All right? It was, it, we were partaking of, whether it was through obedience, whatever it was, we partook of Christ made Christ part of our lives, even in the beginning, was eternal life. So that leaves one last tree that we're a little confused on. And that is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If we see, if we can clearly see that there is a change of gears from every tree, representing all the food, to a more um, symbolic tree, then I think that we have to acknowledge that the symbolic tree of the life of good and the knowledge of good and evil is going to be similar to the knowledge of life and the fact that it's actually in the same phrase. We've got a semicolon and then it says the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, comma, and the tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil. So here's what I, I insert. This is, this is where I'm going to stand. The tree of life is clearly Jesus. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, I believe, represents Satan. Satan was not intended to be in the garden, which we'll, we'll show here in a second how that fits the Bible really well. Satan has fallen, and he comes to earth, and his goal is to mess up everything that God's done. So God comes to Adam, as we see here in a few more verses later, and he says to Adam, 
Again, he says, listen, there is a tree in this garden. Which you've, you've, if, if you take where I'm coming from, he's saying that there is an entity in this garden, Adam, that's going to be out to cause you to fall. He is going to offer you something that you are to say no to. He's going to offer you sin. And he labels this tree. And this label, I no accident, and I think this label lets us know something about this tree. And it lets us know that this might possibly be Satan. Is that this tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. In the earth, under we'll say the earthly creation, there is nothing on this earth that has the knowledge of both good and evil. Adam knew nothing of evil. All he knew was good. Because that's all he knew, that was how he was able, in God's original design, he was able to live out his life forever without sinning because he wouldn't know what sin is. He wouldn't even know how to do it, even though it was there the whole time. Whenever free will is given, a choice is given to do good, there's always that choice to do evil. But Adam wouldn't even understand how to do it. Because a lot of time, sin, not a lot of time, 100% of the time, Sin starts with a motivation. We don't sin because sin is a, a part of our diet. We sin because we have a moving in our heart that says, I want to do something even though I don't want to do it. Adam didn't have that heart. Adam didn't have a heart that says, I want to do something that I shouldn't do. His heart was wired to do everything the way God wanted. His heart was, oh, Lord, I just want to worship and follow you in everything. It never even crossed his, his perfect mind that I should do something in contrary. He, he was just like, like, what are you talking about? Do something other than what God said. He didn't even cross his mind. So what was the only thing in all of creation, both heaven and earth, that would have knowledge of both? There's only one. And that was Satan. Satan had fallen. So he had the knowledge. His eyes had been open. Now they were created different than us. I don't know how they're able to fall without a tempter. But we know that without a tempter, Adam and Eve would have never fallen. But Satan did. And so when his eyes were open, when he saw that, oh, this is what evil looks like, he was then able to share it with others. And that was given him the label of the knowledge of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he understood both sides. And when you understand both sides, all you have to do is understand the opposing side. You already had the knowledge of good. That was in the original creation. Now his eyes have been opened to the knowledge of evil. And so now he was able to see both sides. And so God tells Adam... Be careful of that tree. Be careful of that tree. So we read here that the tree here is, is eaten of in chapter 3. So I'm confused, Nathan. Did they eat it or did they not? And I know. I've already tried to explain to you the best I can how some of this symbolic language can be confusing. But that's so that, that only those who have the eyes and the ears to hear can understand. And it's my duty the calling of God is to put that information out there, then I have to let the Holy Spirit decide what he wants to do with it and who he's going to choose. But we can't land on this idea of eat. He ate of this fruit. Therefore, it must be a literal fruit. There's many references in the Bible where we eat something that we're not literally taking food. And Jesus 
is called in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, when he comes to tempt Jesus, when he goes into the wilderness, he's called the tempter. So this, is, this fits the role of, of what's going to happen. Stay away from this entity in the garden that is going to offer you something, and you, you're going to have to say no. It's going to be the biggest temptation that you will ever have, Adam, will be this tree. But here's, and here's why I know for sure. Whatever ground you want to take on this, this is what I want to know. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and push this one out of the water. There's no way that God created a tree and planted it in the middle of the garden and said, don't eat of this tree. Okay, I, that's what it says. I, I hear that's what it says. But if we, we read it figuratively, and we understand that there is going to be something in the bar. And it doesn't say that God placed it in the garden. It says it was there. Did I read that wrong? It says also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It didn't say that God placed it there. God does not create temptations and call that good. Can I prove that? Yeah. Let's go to our Bibles. Let's go to James. James is going to show us that there was no tree placed in that garden by God. Because that would go against the nature of who God is. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no man say, alright, so this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say what's about to be said here. I'm, I'm not going to be that person. Because it says, don't let any man be this person. Let no man say when he is tempted, okay, if there's a tree in the garden that looks beautiful and delicious, that's a temptation. If I take a candy bar and place it in the middle of the floor of my living room, and I lay my child down next to it, and I walk away, have I left a temptation? Yes, I have. That's what many theologians are teaching what happened in the Garden of Eden is God left a candy bar sitting in the middle of the floor. That's a perfect creation. Now, here, I want you to understand something. If that is true, I'm perfectly happy with that. That God can do whatever he wants. But that just goes against the nature of God that is taught in the Bible. God can be whoever he wants, but if I'm to believe that the God of the Bible is the God in heaven today, that doesn't fit. Because God says that, let no man say that when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. I'm not going to offer evil. That's what it says. Say that again. God says, I am not going to offer evil. If there's a tree in the garden that God placed there, is that not offering evil? Yes. Whatever's in the garden was not originally supposed to be there. That, I think that's common sense. And that leaves only one, one example. If we understand the battle between Jesus and Satan... We understand that Jesus was the life 
and Satan was the avenue to death. It only makes sense that the tree that is being mentioned there is referring to Satan himself, which will play out in the very next chapter. But let's finish up what it says here in James. Verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bring forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That is the Garden of Eden right there. That's Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to end on this. Let me show you how that, what that played out. So you have, it says right here, when thou hast lust, when lust hath conceived, it bring forth sin. Where did the sin start? Right here. Lust. It's a heart issue. It's a feeling. Ooh. Did Adam have lust? No. He didn't know what that was. Because all he knew was what? Good. He didn't have the knowledge of evil yet, which is why he knocked the tree. Adam was the, Adam represented knowledge of good and only good. He, could, he didn't know what lust was. Once Satan showed him what lust looked like, then Adam could bring forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And death, of course, is what you and I are struggling with, and without the blood of Jesus Christ, we'll lose that battle in the end. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have a victor, and we have an avenue and a mediator here on a mediator in our lives, in our spiritual lives, that will take us to our eternal life with our Father in heaven. May God bless you and have a wonderful day.